If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. If you've been here for a while, you know that we were studying Galatians in the fall. We're not jumping back into Galatians quite yet. I mean, we are, but we're not. Uh, This is still the tail end of our January mini-series, and we'll jump back into Galatians in full force next week. Um, Please pray with me as we turn to God's Word. Father in heaven, we, we pray recognizing how much we need your grace, how much we need uh, your spirit, uh, how much we need you to open our hearts and minds to understand your word and to uh, empower us by your spirit to believe it, to trust in our Savior Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray, Father, that you would come and that you would minister to us this morning, that you would uh, take your word and apply it to each of our hearts. Uh, we're all in different places. We're all, um, we all need different things from you this morning, Father, uh, one way or another. But we pray that you would, that you would supply what we need uh, by your grace, by the work of your spirit, through your word. We pray that Christ will be glorified in that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon text is Galatians 5. Verse 14, Galatians 5:14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the whole Christian life is to be a life of love. The whole Christian life from beginning to end, from from birth to death, from morning to night, from the time you go to work in the morning to the time you get home, is all to be characterized by love. And I wonder, uh, when when you hear that, when that comes to mind, what do you think of? What do you think of when you hear the fact that the whole Christian life is to be a life of love? What does that mean? Uh, It can't be talking about romantic love, right? Um, That doesn't encompass all of life. It's a good part of life, an important part of life, but not all of life. Um, It's got to mean more than being nice to people, right? Uh, When the Bible commands us to love our neighbor, it can't simply mean be nice to the people around you. Um, Maybe that's included. It can't simply mean charity either. You know, oftentimes when we hear, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, we think of charity, right? Giving to the poor, caring for the needy, comforting the suffering. That's an important part of it. It's an important part of life, but it's it's not all of life, right? I mean, there are other things we do besides those things. So what does it mean that the Christian life is to be a life of love? And you remember from the past few weeks, we talked about that the great commandments are all about love. Paul says the goal of our teaching is love. What does that mean? Uh, What does that look like? For the past uh, few weeks, we've we've been looking at three things that are really important to the Christian life. We've been talking about the story of the gospel. Uh, I think that was five weeks ago now. Uh, We've been talking about the human heart. 
and our call to love. And uh, we saw last week that we, we gather together to God to receive His grace, receive His love from one another. And this week we're going to see that the result of that is that we then go out into the world to show God's love to our neighbor. So first we gather to receive God's love, to receive His grace, and then we scatter into the world to show His love to our neighbor. Of course, if, if our if our call is to love, we have to know what that means. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And our, our outline, which you can see on the back of your bulletin, there are three questions we're going to answer. Pretty basic questions in some ways about love. What, what is love? Uh, what, does, what does neighbor love look like? And how do we get there? Uh, our text, again, is Galatians 5.14, and uh, we're, we're actually going to look at the, the context in the near future as we pick back up our study in Galatians starting next week. For, day, for, for today, though, we're going to actually just focus on these words, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, in, uh, in Romans 13.9, Paul says something similar. He says, all the commandments are summed up in the phrase, Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus says something similar. We read it earlier in Matthew 7, 12. He says, so whatever uh, you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, uh, for this is the law and the prophets. Um, And this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is taken straight out of Leviticus, Leviticus 19, 18. And and so while this commandment is not uh, without context, has many contexts in Scripture, um, its context is really bigger than any one chapter. Right? This, this is something God commands again and again and again. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so what does that mean? What is love? No small question. <laughs> Deborah just laughed at me. She laughed at me. Um, if, if, uh, if you look the verb love up in the dictionary, you find definitions like to have a tender passionate affection for another, to have a strong liking for, to take great pleasure in. And uh, these kinds of definitions capture something that is true, uh, but I think they're inadequate. Uh, Love involves really three things. Those definitions capture one of the three things. Love involves uh, to know and to delight in and to serve, right? It involves knowledge and delight and service. And while our culture emphasizes the middle one, delight, like when we say, I love ice cream, or I love chocolate, right? We're talking about delight. Um, Our culture emphasizes the middle of those three things. Scripture, while I think teaching all three, by far emphasizes the last, doesn't it? To serve. So uh, Scripture really defines love as giving of yourself for the good of another, you may have heard me say that before, and I hope to say it so much you get sick of it, because I think it's really important, right, that love is giving of yourself for the good of another. Uh, our text, Galatians 5.14, says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, that, that phrase on the end there, as yourself, uh, I think has either been abused or discarded by most, Right? Either we ignore it or we abuse it in some way. Uh, To to love your neighbor, 
this command to love your neighbor as yourself assumes that you love yourself. Uh, It's not a command to love yourself. Uh, It's not an excuse for self-indulgence. It's it's not an excuse to neglect loving your neighbor. Uh, But it does assume, it does assume that you love yourself, which is interesting. Um, And we could take it one step further. The command does not assume that your self-love is sinful. It doesn't assume that. Um, There there is such a thing as sinful self-love. Our self-love can be inordinate, which means it kind of takes over. Uh, But when Paul or Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, they cannot be assuming that all self-love is sinful. Because otherwise, the command means, you shall love your neighbor sinfully as you love yourself sinfully, which I, I don't think is what they're saying. There is something about self-love that God is actually commending in this commandment. And the question is, what is it? Um, You know, Jesus frequently uh, appeals to our legitimate self-interest in Scripture. Uh, So when he warns us of the dangers of hell, or when he warns us that saving our life will lose it, or when he encourages us uh, to strive for God-given heavenly rewards rather than man-given earthly ones. Jesus is appealing to legitimate self-interest there. He's calling us to to sacrifice of ourselves for our own sake, right? Give up your life because then you will really find it. Forgo earthly rewards because then you will find heavenly ones. It's right for us to have a basic concern for our own well-being. The the problem is not that concern, uh, but when that concern becomes greater than our love for God or trumps our concern for one another. So Jesus and Paul, when they give this command to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, they are simply saying, look, you know how you care for yourself. Care for others in the same way. Pretty pretty obvious, maybe. Um, you, you give up things for yourself so that you will have something greater, right? You sacrifice for yourself. Um, we, we do this all the time, right? If you, if you stay up late studying so that you can uh, do well on an exam, right, you're giving up certain things like sleep, right? And you're doing that for the sake of something else. Um, you, we give up things for our Selves, so that we will have something greater in the end. Um, Jesus is saying, Paul is saying, do the same thing for your neighbor. Neighbor love is to give of oneself for the good of another or to give of oneself to, to give life to another, right? You give of yourself to give life to someone else. This definition, right, it really comes straight out of the cross, doesn't it? The cross is where we see love most clearly displayed. And Jesus there gave of himself for the good of another, to give life to us. Gave of himself for the good of another. Uh, this kind of, of neighbor love demonstrates our love for God, right? Our, our text says, for the whole law, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what is striking is that the text says, the whole law, which means our, our whole life of service to God is summed up in terms of love of neighbor. The rest of God's law simply explains what that looks like. But you might ask, okay, well, 
what about love for God? When Paul says the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, uh, he seems to be leaving out the greatest commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the answer is, I think obvious when you begin to think about it, that love for our neighbor demonstrates our love for God. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the summary of the commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you love Jesus, you will strive to love your neighbor out of your love for Jesus. And the point is not so much that there aren't ways that we love Jesus outside of love for neighbor. There are. But that love for neighbor encompasses love for God as well, right? When we love our neighbor... We demonstrate our love for God, and therefore we fulfill the whole law, loving God and neighbor in the same action. Love for neighbor demonstrates our love for God. So neighbor love is, is when we give of ourselves for the good of another in demonstration of our love to God or because of our love for God. Okay, what does that look like? That's pretty abstract, right? What does that look like? I'm going to break that down into two parts. You can see, I think, even in your outline, we're going to talk about love at creation and then love since the fall. First, love at creation. Uh, Scripture tells us that God is love, and uh, humanity was created in God's image from the start, created to be lovers. And that love from the start, interestingly enough, um, could not express itself in what we think of as charity. It could not express itself in in mercy ministry. It could not express itself in evangelism because there was no sin in the beginning. There was no suffering. There was no need for the gospel. So then how did love express itself from the start? Well, one way, at least, Uh, One big way, one important way, is uh, through our vocations. Now, I know we we don't tend to think of our jobs as an expression of love. It's our work, right? Sometimes it's the antithesis of love, right? It's this thing that we have to do day by day. And then, you know, maybe we love the people there sometimes. We love our coworkers, sometimes not. But we don't think of our vocations as an expression of love, which is one of the things that I I hope uh, that will be different by the time we're done this morning. Um, One of the primary ways, I would say, one of the primary ways that we give of ourselves for the good of others is through our vocations, through our callings in life. And to see that, I want us to look at Genesis 128. Uh, You you may be familiar with that verse, Genesis 128. I tend to go to it a lot. But um, Genesis 1.28, God blesses humanity and he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And uh, in that verse, Genesis 1.28, there are three uh, commonly recognized aspects of, of our human calling. Uh, the three commonly recognized aspects are our family, culture, and government, right? Be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, 
and rule. And I, I want to say, actually, that it is these spheres of life, it is in those spheres that we are chiefly called to give of ourselves for the good of those around us. Here's what I mean, right? For example, right, in the realm of family. Uh, Genesis 1.28, God calls us to fill the earth with his image. And while filling the earth uh, with God's image involves having children, on the one hand, uh, it's also more than that. This is a call to, to have and to nurture and to care for people made in God's image so that they grow up in that image so that God's image fills the earth, right? That's what God wants. He wants his image to be everywhere. And uh, really, this starts with motherhood, doesn't it? Uh, motherhood, to me, is actually uh, the very definition of love. Uh, think about it, right? If you're a mom, you were pregnant for nine months, you went through hours of most likely difficult labor, and then you struggled to keep that little person alive by feeding them from your own body. That is the definition of love, right? To give of yourself to give life to another. And uh, so, you know, from the start, moms and doctors and midwives, right, give of themselves to bring children into the world. Uh, parents are called to give of themselves for the good of their children. School teachers are called to give of themselves for the good of their students. Uh, even bus drivers and crossing guards give of themselves so students can get to school safely. Janitors give of themselves so that schools can be clean and healthy and safe. Think of the, the myriad number of roles in which people give of themselves to care for, nurture, and grow children, right? So that children can live out their full humanity. And if you give yourself to that end, right, that is love. Uh, I'm not saying that there aren't people who, in those roles who love poorly, right? We know that there are. Uh, but our calling in those roles is, is to love well, to give of ourselves for the good of someone else. Okay, what about culture? Uh, humanity from the start is called to subdue the earth, right? This uh, imposing phrase, subdue the earth. What does that mean? Uh, it means uh, to order the as yet at that point in Genesis chapter 1, order the as yet unordered creation so that it becomes life-giving. It means to take the raw materials of the earth to harness their created potential in order to give life. And so in Genesis 2, God places Adam in the Garden of Eden to tend and cultivate it, and Adam is to, to care for the trees so that they bear fruit, to care for the flowers so that they blossom, to work the ground is to, to cultivate it so that this patch of brown dirt becomes a life-giving green garden. So to give of yourself, to bring order to the world, to the end of human flourishing, right? That, that's love. To give of yourself for the good of another. Um, that's obvious with vocations like farmers. Okay, that's an easy one, right? But uh, construction workers, too bring order to the world to the end of human flourishing. I mean, think about it. How, how much of what you do is in a building? It would be really cold right now if there were no building around us and snow were, it uh, stopped snowing, but, you know, snow were on our seats and et cetera, et cetera. Um, think of all the people who worked to make uh, this building possible. 
so that we could meet here today. I mean, you not only have the, the people who made the physical building itself, but the people who made the chairs, the people who made the electronic system, the sound system, the speakers, I mean, all of that so that we can, so that we can meet in this building comfortably this morning. Right? They gave of themselves for our good. Grocery store clerks, right? They're, they're part of that order, uh, part of the order that enables human flourishing. That's the way we get our food for most of us, right? Unless you grow your own food at home. Uh, you, you go to the grocery store and you, you need that person. All right, they're, they're, I guess they're getting rid of them, right? They're, you check yourself out nowadays. But uh, you get the point. Um, uh, artists, too, right, can create artwork which engenders human flourishing. Of course, that means we have to define human flourishing more broadly than mere existence or with mere utilitarian ends in mind. Human flourishing involves truth, it involves beauty, it involves rest. Hospitality fits in here. Uh, when you show hospitality, you're creating a, a space, you're inviting others into that space, a space that's conducive to the flourishing, including uh, conducive to relationships, growing. Maybe you get the point, right, that whatever your role in life, uh, in whatever way you give of yourself to bring order to an unordered or, since the fall, disordered world, anyway, you're a part of that order, order which promotes human flourishing, order that gives life, that's an aspect of love. Giving of yourself to bring order to the end of human flourishing, that, that is love. Again, people might do that poorly. Uh, people might do that for the wrong ends, right? I'm not right, being naive here. I know not everyone does those things for the sake of the people they're serving. But that's what we're called to do in those roles. What about government? What about politicians? Government actually is the quintessential example. Uh, you know what we call people who work in government, right? We call them public servants. Right? Their, their role is to serve the pub public. Right? They have no other reason for existence except to serve the public. I think the stereotype of the self-interested politician is so striking to us because self-interest in that role is so obviously counter to the reason the role exists. They're, they're there to, to, uh, for the good of the public, not for their own good. And when we think or believe or know that they're there for their own good, we know that's, that's horrible, that's wrong. Those who give their time and energy to govern well are giving of themselves for the good of others. To govern well is to love well. Do, do you see what I'm doing here, right? I'm trying to give you a, a picture of life that sees all of life as an opportunity to love well. Every sphere of life, family and culture and government, is a sphere of life in and through which we are meant to give of ourselves for the good of those around us. We give of ourselves in order to give life to others. Now, no one's going to do all of these things, right? No one is called to do all of those things. No one is built to do all of those things. Uh, each of us are given unique gifts and a unique calling to serve God with the talents that he has supplied. But why have I then 
belabored this point and gone through all of these different things. Well, I think, I think many Christians sometimes live with this underlying sense of guilt that, um, that we should be doing more. And maybe that's true. I, I don't know. Um, but often that guilt is increased by a false guilt, a guilt that I'm not doing the real work of the real Christian work, right, of vocationally being a missionary or being a social worker or, or working in a soup kitchen or being an evangelist or something like that. But I want to say, no, actually, we, we are called to love others through all kinds of vocations. They're not second-rate vocations, To think about your vocation as a way of giving of yourself for the good of those around you, giving of yourself to give life to others, I think it it will change the way you you do your work. It will change the way you think about your work, hopefully. might change the work that you do, I don't know. Um, It might inspire you to be more creative in the work that you do. But whatever it does, I, I hope it enables you to begin to appreciate how to take up your cross and follow Christ into your work each day. Because you go to give of yourself for the good of others. And if you, if you can't, uh, in, in good conscience, right, see how your work uh, benefits those around you, uh, one, come and talk to me, because maybe we can figure it out together. But two, if it's really, if it's a job that benefits no one, um, maybe, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Maybe there's something else you could be doing. I doubt you'll find a job that benefits no one, uh, but let's, let's talk about it, if so. Um, that's the way God intended humanity, to love one another at creation, right, through those various roles. But, of course, something has changed since then, uh, and I don't mean the invention of Twitter, right? Humanity rebelled against God's plan, Uh, Sin entered into the world, suffering and death through sin. And all of those other ways of loving, they're still valid. We still need them. Uh, But post-fall, there are new ways that we are called to love our neighbor. Which brings us to love since the fall. All of the, the ways of loving we just talked about remain, but our situation is different, right? Human rebellion has brought sin and suffering and death. And whereas at creation... Uh, Parts of the world were still unordered. God called Adam and Eve to subdue the earth. Uh, Now, parts are actually disordered. At creation, we were called to nourish the image of God, but now that image must be restored first. At creation, we were called to pursue human flourishing, but now we must fight against the, the withering of humanity under sin. And at the risk of oversimplification, and this really is a gross oversimplification, um, so I'm sorry, but it's kind of a framework, right? So you understand all the details and the nuances within that. But at the risk of oversimplification, there are two broad effects of the fall. And uh, they are situational evil and moral evil. Situational trouble and moral evil. Situational evil, right, is things like poverty or sickness or suffering or loneliness. Uh, moral evil are, are things like rebellion and selfishness and murder, things which bring judgment. Really, in some ways, we were talking about these this morning in the Sunday school class, right? There are 
as, as you talk about physical problems, th those would be situational. As you talk about spiritual problems, those would be moral. Right? The line isn't always clear, as we talked about in Sunday school. Um, we talked about addiction. Somebody brought up addiction, right? Is that situational? Is that moral? Is that both? What's going on there? Well, stay tuned. Come to Sunday school, and we'll talk about that. Um, uh, sometimes what, what is one person's moral evil, say racism, becomes another person's situational evil, right? Dealing with another person's racism. With all the ambiguity, though, the distinction is valid. And the way you love someone dealing with each uh, is, is actually a little bit different. Again, drawing with broad brushstrokes, right? Unnuanced, I realize, but... To, to someone suffering under situational evil, you show mercy. And to someone struggling with moral evil, you speak grace. So first, right, showing mercy. Um, you know, poverty, suffering, uh, loneliness, victims of uh, abuse or racism or injustice. How do we love our neighbors who find themselves in these kinds of situations? Well, we, we seek to alleviate the trouble when possible and provide comfort in the midst of that. We point them to God's love and care in the midst of their struggles. So you, you show compassion, right? You encourage, you, you show up, right? Sometimes just being there for another speaks loudly and brings great comfort. You provide for physical needs when able, right? If someone is hungry, you give him food. If someone is thirsty, you give him drink. If someone is naked, you give him clothes. That, those words may be familiar to you, right? If someone's in danger, you provide protection. We should be willing to give uh, when we see a need, giving of ourselves for the good of another, right? That's the definition of love. We do those things because in doing them, we bear witness to the fact, uh, one, that our God cares for us in the midst of our trouble, Right? As we care for others, we're representing our God. And two, we're bearing witness to the fact that God is going to take away all trouble in the end at Jesus' return. Right? So we're bearing witness to God's care for us now and our hope in the future of God taking away all of our trials, all of our suffering, all of our difficulty. Again, you know, I think one of the problems as we hear these kinds of things is we begin to feel the weight of all the world's problems on our shoulders. No one should feel the weight of doing everything because no one can do everything. Uh, God doesn't call you to do everything. In fact, sometimes I think, um, sometimes as we think about all the needs in the world, uh, we, we begin to feel both overwhelmed and even guilty. Right? As if God called any one of us to solve all the world's problems in our own strength. Of course, that's not true, right? Ultimately, it's the return of Christ that will solve all the world's problems in his strength in a moment. We bear witness to that as we love people in sometimes small but tangible ways. I think the word neighbor is actually helpful here, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. We, we always start by looking around us. Uh, may, maybe you want to relocate to another part of the world because you feel God calling you to play a role elsewhere, to give of yourself uh, elsewhere. That's great. But neighborliness, right, proximity, face-to-face -face love is our first calling, even if you go somewhere else to live that out. You love the people right around you first. And one reason that this is so important is because to love people well, we need to know them. You know, we often love without knowledge. That's counterproductive, sometimes harmful, right, 
to love people when you don't really know what's going on. To, and I, by that I mean to do something, right? To think you're loving people, to think you're doing good to them when you really don't know them. Uh, there are a couple of books about that. Maybe, maybe you've heard of them. The book Toxic Charity, uh, the book uh, When Helping Hurts. Both of those books describe how counterproductive uh, mercy ministry and mission work sometimes is and can be. Doesn't have to be, but sometimes is. Um, the point is we need to have our minds engaged if we're going to love people well, uh, which means that the most obvious thing, which sometimes is the most easy thing, is not always the most helpful thing. Um, and those books uh, that I mentioned, they're, they're worth reading if we are going to learn uh, to show mercy well. And the point, again, is if you want to love your neighbor in the midst of their suffering and trouble, you must know them and then think creatively how to best be of help to them, how to give of yourself, your own particular time, talents, uh, resources, etc., in order to give life to the people around you. So the, the first way of loving people since the fall is, is showing mercy, right? showing mercy, seeking to alleviate trouble, uh, speaking comfort into someone's life. The second is speaking grace. You know, when someone is steeped in sin and rebellion, our approach is somewhat different. Uh, situational evil requires alleviation and comfort, showing mercy, but moral evil requires confrontation and grace. Um, we're pretty bad at confrontation today. Uh, in fact, we've kind of evacuated loving com confrontation, loving disagreement from all polite discourse. Um, but, but we, need to, we need to learn how to do that, right? We, need, we must learn to lovingly, graciously, kindly disagree with people. Uh, why is that? Well, the gospel is good news to sinners. Um, God's grace is good news to the rebellious. It's also good news to sufferers, right? I don't want to deny that. The gospel message is about the renewal of all things. But Jesus Christ came to save sinners and to call sinners to repentance, and so we must always be ready, right, to speak grace to fellow sinners, which is often discomforting. Not comforting, but discomforting. We're not to speak down to them, of course, right, but as someone has put it well, uh, like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, we as sinners in need of grace tell other sinners where to find grace. We tell people about the one who shed his blood to forgive us for our moral evil and who gives us his spirit to free us from its enslaving power. We do that graciously. Right? We need to do it graciously. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Proverbs 16.24, which if I'm allowed to have a life verse, it's, it's Proverbs 16.24, um, which is it's really simple, actually. It's, it's gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. If you want to give life to someone, right, speak words of grace into their life. There's no greater word of, of grace, of course, than the word of the gospel. Right? That's the word of God's grace that gives us life, that is like a honeycomb, that is sweet to our souls. So in light of sin and judgment, what we all most need, know it or not, right, is the life-giving, gracious word of the gospel. 
So how do, you, how do you love people trapped in situational evil, right? If possible, you alleviate it creatively, thoughtfully. You always provide comfort. You embody, right, Christ in you for this person, bearing witness to the God who cares for us, body and soul, and who's going to renew all things at his return. How do you love people trapped in moral evil? Well, you speak words of grace into their lives. You call them to faith in Jesus, who alone can forgive them of their guilt and empower them by his spirit to live new lives. Now, I realize that I've just given a laundry list of ways to love people, which, again, can be immensely overwhelming. I, I gave that list because I think it's important, right, if we're going to lo- love well, to see the breadth of opportunities, right? We, we love by giving of ourselves for the good of another. We love through our vocations as moms and dads, as teachers and construction workers, as artists and service people, and yes, even as politicians. Uh, we love through showing mercy, alleviating trouble, embodying the love of Christ in us for others. We love by speaking grace graciously as we have opportunity. Uh, Let me say again, no one's called to all of those things, certainly not called to all of them all at once. Uh, Not even Jesus did all of these things, right? He was a carpenter. He did that. He was a teacher. He did that. He's even a politician. He's the king of kings, after all. Uh, But he never, except metaphorically, uh, maybe, was a mom. He never gave birth. He never nursed a child. Right? So no one's called to everything, not even Jesus. That's comforting, I think. Um, And even what you are called to do, uh, you're not called to do that all at the same time. Uh, or even all the time, right? I mean, you might speak grace in your classroom and you might show mercy to your coworker, but very few people show mercy and speak grace simultaneously as their vocation. Right? Make sense? Right? Um, there are even times when we do none of these things. We just sit back and simply enjoy Christ and enjoy the world that he has made. And that's good, right? Rest is a part of human flourishing. In fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments, rest. So that's good. Um, Nevertheless, Christ sends us out into the world to love. To see life as an opportunity to love, I I think, is a paradigm shift for some of us. Uh, And it's not one that we easily make. Um, I don't always want to love the people around me. I don't know about you. Um, I don't always want to give of myself. I want to hold on tight. So how do we get to the place where our our default mode of living is giving of ourselves for the good of others? How do we get there? Which is the next point, the last point. And the short answer is, right, we we must have in us the mind of Christ and be motivated by the love of Christ. Jim read earlier for us from Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to reread a chunk of that. Philippians 2, beginning with verse 3, says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, not only to his own interests. doesn't say not to his own interests. That brings up the point we made before. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We need that mind of Christ in us. We need the humility of Christ. We need the spirit of Christ. And this happens as we look to Christ, right? as we look to him in repentance and faith, as we confess our selfishness and our pride and our inordinate self-love, as we acknowledge all the ways that we have been unloving to people. And then as we look to the one who, who has been loving, the one who was humble, the one who put others first, the one who bore our sin. We look to him not just as an example, not just as a model, because if you only look to Christ as an example or as a model, man, that's, that's even worse. That's even more overwhelming because you, you can't be what he is and you can't do what he did. So if you only look to Christ as an example or as a model, uh, that will only crush you more. But, but we look to him to see his love for us and be melted by it. So only as we look to the cross will we realize with Paul that he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? See, we hold on tight because we fear that we're not going to have enough. I, I'm afraid to give of myself for the good of another because I'm afraid of what that might mean for me. But we don't have to hold on tight afraid that God might not come through because we have a God who has ultimately already come through for us in the cross and through Christ. And if he gave up his son for us, why would he stop there? Only as uh, the love gift of the Father grips our hearts will our fear melt away and we'll know that our Father who has provided Christ for us is going to continue to care for us in our every situation. And only as the selfless love of Christ grips our hearts will our selfishness melt away. Right? We cannot remain selfish as we grasp the selflessness of the Redeemer, as we see the depth of his love. Now, you may think, well, I've been a Christian a long time and I'm still so selfish, so unloving. Right? Isn't it great that our Father is more patient with us than we are with ourselves? <laughs> it's true. You probably are still selfish. <laughs> I think about that sometimes. I became a Christian in uh, 1996, which I'm not very good at math, but I think was 20 years ago or so. Um, and uh, I, sometimes I stop and think, I, I feel like I'm less loving than I was back then. Not, not just that I'm not more loving, right? Sometimes, some days, <laughs> some days, you know those days, right? I feel less loving. Thankfully, God is more patient with us than we are with ourselves. And we just need to keep looking to Jesus, right? There's no trick, there's no tip, there's no, there's no magic wand that we can wave. We look to Jesus, we trust in his saving work, we let his love melt our hearts and then we look again, and then we look again, and then we look again, until every last ounce of hardness, uh, the hardness of our hearts, sort of leaks out our toes. And only the love of Christ remains, warming our hearts with love for him and love for our neighbor. Let's pray that it would be so. Let's pray.
Our Father, we, uh, we see your call to love and the breadth of it, uh, that you call us to love others in everything, to give of ourselves for the good of those around us, to love our neighbor as ourself, to not look to our own interests but only, but also to the interests of others. And yet that's both overwhelming and doesn't always fit with the desires of our hearts. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust you, that you're a God who's going to provide and care for us, and help us to see the depth of your love, that we would indeed be moved by it, that your love would move us, would motivate us, would uh, transform our hearts, that we would love those around us the way we have been loved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.